0: Colin Calloway, author of The Chiefs Now in This City. Colin Calloway, author of The Chiefs Now in This City. Who are the chiefs and what city are they in?
1: The chiefs are members of Indian delegations, sometimes individuals, but uh, more often in groups, who visited early American cities uh, in colonial times and then in uh, in the first years of the Republic uh, to do business. But my interest in them was really to try and find out as much as I could about what they were doing when they were in town, when they were actually not doing business. Because a lot of them were there for a very long time. They may have come to meet George Washington And they perhaps met him twice, but stayed for weeks. Uh, So I was intrigued as to what were they doing and why were they there? And so the the title of the book, The Chiefs Now in the City, was a title that I lifted from early American newspapers. It was almost a code word for this is what the chiefs who are in town are doing. And they would not only report, what they had been doing, but often sometimes make an announcement of what they were going to do. The chiefs now in the city will be attending the theater tonight. So if you want to see these guys, this is the place to go.
0: What period of time are you talking about?
1: Yep, I am looking at um, from the 17th century at some vague starting date to a definite finishing date, which is 1800. And the reason I chose 1800 as the end date was not only is that a nice round number uh, for finishing a book, but of course it's also the date when the capital of the United States moves to Washington D.C. And there have been there have been books written about Indian delegations to to Washington D.C. and I wanted to make mine uh, the early American cities. Well, the The Indian people are dealing with the different colonies and then with a nation that's still in the process of formation.
0: Why would these Indian groups have visited these cities?
1: Lots of reasons. Um, Of course, Indian delegations visited cities to make treaties in which they ceded land to colonial powers or the early national government. But in the early period, not as much as when we see Indian delegations visiting Washington in the 19th century. Indian delegates would have visited the cities to make pacts of friendship, to form alliances, to renew alliances, because in Native American diplomacy, you did not simply make an alliance, declare yourself friends and then you were friends for life. This was something that had to be renewed and it often had to be renewed in the place where it was originally established. Um, They would make trade agreements. Sometimes they would come on particular diplomatic uh, business. Sometimes they would come eventually to visit people they knew. And so there's a whole host of reasons. And it's a regular feature of early American history and one which I think we, we, we don't pay enough attention to because we're so accustomed to the notion that cities as the symbols of Western expansion and civilization as they were held up were places that Indian people retreated from rather than places that they went to. And I've always been intrigued by the Indian people who were in the cities, so that even when these delegations arrived in town, and and very often when they did that, crowds turned out to see them. Sometimes in those crowds, I'm sure there were Indian people who were already living in town and who had gravitated to the cities in the wake of the disruption of their economies, to weak out a new existence, and in some cases to create a new life for themselves. They may have disappeared into the kind of underlife of the cities, but they were there. And so there would be part of a of these urban spaces that were simultaneously, if you like, indigenous spaces. So I think it 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 really helps to Holes in that idea of a frontier as being a palisade and a wall between people. People are moving back and forth, and they're moving in and out of the cities. And for Indian people, coming to these colonial early American port cities, this is very much a a different world, and that's why I implied in the title that this was, for Indian people, a frontier, just as much as for non-Indian people Going west, they encountered a frontier.
0: I want to ask you about a title in uh, a word in your title, chiefs. What, what constituted a chief?
1: Yeah, and I talk a little bit about, about this in, in the book because it's a very vague term that we use a lot. And when I say we, I mean me as well, of course. Um, using it simply in the term of a leadership role. Europeans and Americans use it all the time. But that term obscures a lot of many more specific roles that Native uh, leaders had. You could be a war chief, you could be, if you like, a peace chief. You could have, uh, your role could be to create and maintain harmony within the community. Your role could be to act as a mediator or a go-between with other communities. There were chiefly roles or leadership roles that that women occupied. And a lot of these differences kind of get glossed over when we use that term chief. Um, And it was also a term that the Europeans who used it sometimes also had a hand in creating the people that they recognized as chiefs by giving gifts to certain individuals, symbols of authority to certain individuals, or choosing certain individuals to be the go-to people with whom they discuss business. And that might be somebody not deserving of of a uh, if you like, a chiefly title in a traditional role, but the very fact that the Europeans are speaking with this person in a world where increasingly the Europeans are important elevates this person in importance. So there's a lot of complexities there
0: you you I have to read this quote, you quote william Penn as they they move by the breath of their people now yeah. did did the Europeans, try to change the role of the chief into the way they understood a, a boss of a group to be as opposed to the way the Indians understood
1: yeah I, th- I think they did and I think part of that out of what's going on that is part of what's going on when Europeans are designating certain individuals to as chiefs because they're also designating them to act as chiefs as they understand it and of course this is a Uh, an aspect that that generates quite a lot of confusion and and difficulty because Europeans would say, well, we made a treaty with your chiefs and your people have not adhered to the uh, treaty. And the Indian leaders would say, but we cannot speak for our people. We can only bring this agreement to them and have them agree with it or not. And Europeans would would scoff at that, while at the same time having the same difficulty themselves, because they were no more able to control their citizens out on the frontier than Indian leaders were able to control their young men. The difference being that the Indian leaders would, would often say, not only We cannot control our young men. We do not control our young men. That's not how it works.
0: You you mentioned also women's role in chief. And I want to read you this. You say Europeans underestimate, ignore, or dismiss the leadership roles exercised um, exercised by women in colonial society. You don't hear much about women's role as chief. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: And I think one of the reasons you don't hear about it, of course, and this is, An inherent problem in doing Native American history, but of course in doing Native American uh, history that uh, pertains to women, is that the records and most of the records are not only produced by white people, but they're produced by white men. And if you're a, a, a colonial male going into Indian country to do business, you're going there looking to do business with the people who are responsible for hunting, trading, warfare, diplomacy. That's the realm of men. So they tend to ignore and maybe not even see women whose roles are, are much more um, important in uh, agriculture, raising, raising families, etc. And again, the very fact that the colonial powers and their representatives Ignore the women. Actually, I think has a negative impact in reducing the significance of the women. Um, but they are there, and we, there are glimpses of them even in the records produced by non-Indian men who will talk about uh, Nancy Ward of the Cherokees or Molly Brown of, of the Mohawk of, as people who have influence. And I think what we're getting when we we see those uh, few words is just a glimpse of a much deeper world where women's roles are important. And obviously in Haudenosaunee or Iroquois society, women's roles were um, were key in the um, choosing and installing, and even in some cases, the removal of people we might call chiefs.
0: So if an Indian delegation was going to make a trip to, say, to visit George Washington in the capital, how, who would decide who would make up the, the group? You said some of the groups are pretty large.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good question and one that I uh, tried to pursue um, because they vary tremendously. Sometimes a delegation seems to comprise simply the, if you like, the go-to people who you see making these trips all the time. There are certain um, individual uh, Native leaders who appear in Philadelphia all the time, and the the people in Philadelphia know who they are, and that seems to have been clearly a role into which they have stepped, whether they've been asked to do that by the tribal community or whether they've inserted themselves into that role, not always sure. But sometimes it's clear that when it's known that a delegation is going to visit town, other people want to go along. In spite of the fact that the city authorities or the colonial authorities would actually often try and discourage large numbers because of course, when when the delegations were in town, it often put a stress on accommodation, but also the colonial authorities were usually footing the bill. And some of these delegations um, reached into the hundreds because they brought women and children accompanied them. Well, you
0: write about Pittsburgh, one of the cities that they visited. You said that the, uh, the community grew up outside its walls and never reached more than a few hundred people before the end of the 18th century when 1,136 Indian men, women, and children turned up for a treaty conference. Their encampments would have dwarfed the embryonic settlement that turned Pittsburgh temporarily into an Indian town. So these mm. are, 1,136 is a lot of people to arrive for a, for a treaty negotiation.
1: Sure. And of course, Pittsburgh... Uh, what we're actually talking about is is Fort Pitt and it's a pivotal and important um, post uh, and location but of course it's a long time and a long way from being the industrial giant that it becomes in in the 19th century Uh, and I think that's one of the things we have to tweak our imagination a little bit to rethink America as it looked then and rethink some of the places that we automatically assume were these enormous cities. And of course, um, even the big cities were not enormous cities by our by our standards. So on more than one occasion, a large Indian delegation arriving would not only, introduce a large number of strangers into town, it would alter the whole composition of the town. When you look at the, the great piece of Montreal in the, right at the beginning of the 18th century, hundreds of Indian people descend on Montreal uh, at a time when Montreal is, is still a very small uh, French town. Um, so there are, I think there are instances where these towns actually could become Indian towns for a time.
0: You said there was one one Indian town in North America that had a population of about twenty thousand. So, how so? There were not necessarily small communities out there, but how big was would Philadelphia have been compared to the size of the the Indian towns?
1: Well, I think that in the example that I use early in the book, I do a kind of quick helicopter tour across pre-contact Native America, picking out some places that we could recognize by our standards as large urban spaces, uh, different definitions of cities. But the the famous one, of course, is Cahokia, which is where East St. Louis uh, stands, which in the Middle Ages was at least as big as London. And so the idea there was just to help us to remember that towns were not a European import, Indian people lived in towns. Contrary to our notion in popular culture that Indians peoples always lived in tiny villages, they were just hunters and gatherers. Because even in the 18th century, there are substantial large Indian settlements where thousands of people are living in in that area, whether it's the Mandan Hadatsa villages on, on the upper Missouri or um, you know, in the 17th century, Wichita villages in what is now Kansas. Um, in, in the context of those numbers, then Philadelphia before, or what does it reach? 20,000 or something in 1763. Um, it, you, you, get a, you get an idea of the, not the difference in scales, but the similarities in scale. Which is not to say that Philadelphia or any of it, these other cities would not have been impressive to visiting Indian delegations, um, but rather to remind us that what we're talking about in in terms of population. And I I had this experience when I um on one of my trips to uh, Philadelphia. It may have been the last time we spoke. Uh, I walked around the old, old old city of Philadelphia, and of course, what struck struck me, is how walkable that is, because it's relatively small. So if you have an Indian delegation in town for a number of weeks, probably they're going to see all there is to see, and everybody's going to see that, um, because it's still that kind of face-to-face urban space, I think, that, that's uh, perhaps somewhat different from, from from how we might imagine it, given our sense of cities always being enormous and uh, noisy and all the rest of it.
0: Well, if you were living in Philadelphia at the time, how how often would you have seen an Indian delegation pass through town?
1: Well, I was going to talk just the other day, and I, I, I used the phrase, uh, you probably couldn't have stepped out to go and buy a loaf of bread without bumping into an Indian delegation. And, of course, that's not true. But what I was thinking of in particular was The early 1790s, um, especially the first administration of George Washington, where we know um, that in one week, I think it was in November 1796, George Washington had dinner in his uh, official uh, residence with four different Indian delegations on four different days of the week. So... That means that there are multiple delegations in town at the same time. On another occasion, a delegation of Indian people from what is the Ohio country essentially is getting a tour of the city and they're visiting Peel's museum. And they bump into a delegation of Southern Indians, Choctaws, Chickasaws, and Creeks, who are also in town and are getting the same tour. So, um, my comment was an exaggeration, but it's not a total exaggeration. These delegations would not have been a rare occurrence. They were frequent, and I think they were frequent because they were important. And the reason that George Washington invited Indian delegates to dinner was because he recognized they were important because Indian nations were still powerful and the United States was still not.
0: Did did all these various Indian nations that were visiting get along with each other, or were there some tensions um, there?
1: there? There's some tensions. There are cases where Cherokee Indians and Creek Indians visiting Charleston, South Carolina um, are kind of Rubbing up each other, there's some tensions about whether how they're going to house them, so they're not living uh, too closely. And when those Ohio Indian delegates bump into the to the Southern Indian delegates, there's a worry because this is just after the um, wars between the Northwest Confederacy in the Ohio country in the United States, in which the Chickasaws had actually sent warriors who acted as scouts and allies of the American army so this could have been um, it was an awkward moment it could have been a lot more because there was some uh, old grudges there so that was something to take into account both for the Indian delegations and for the colonial or um, national government because this is not a world in which a colonial power is dealing with Indians. It's a world in which there are multiple Indian nations conducting their own foreign policies, sending their, if you like, ambassadors to places like Philadelphia. And the colonial power who receives them and deals with them has to understand the ramifications of the different tribal foreign policies and at the same time be aware of the fact that these ambassadors from tribal nations may well be playing them off against another colonial power. Very often in uh, the instances where Indian delegations in Philadelphia will meet with British colonial officials and, and the British colonial officials will give them gifts as was appropriate and part of the protocols uh, and rituals of of diplomacy. And the Indian speaker would say, well, thank you for your gifts. It's not very much. It's not like what the French give us when we go to visit Montreal, (laughs) failed threat. Uh, And then the English step up and say, well, let's let us give you something more. More often, what was going on, I think, was that Indian uh, delegates, Indian politicians were keeping their options open and maneuvering their way through a very dangerous colonial world, but recognizing that they they still had some control over their own um, situation in that world. Well, during this period of time that you
0: cover in your book, the, the the French and Indian War happened and the American Revolution happened and different Indian nations allied with either the French or the Americans or the English and not necessarily with each other. Because when they would come to Philadelphia, was that kind of put aside, like let bygones be bygones, or, or were there just some irreconcilable differences there?
1: Well, I think that... They're never put aside, um, but there are some, it was possible to meet in a time of conflict, that there are rituals and protocols um, and philosophies of peace by which Indian people operate. And the, the kindling of a, of a council fire um, was a way of enabling people to come together, in a good way, be of good mind and and, and talk peace. Otherwise, how would you um, move on from, from war? So sometimes delegations are in Philadelphia while the war clouds are gathering, um, or even during the war itself, and that sometimes makes just getting to Philadelphia dangerous for them, because they're on their way to Philadelphia, traveling through Um, settlements where people have or or still are uh, engaged in conflict, have had raids by Indians on their farms and families. Maybe not the same Indian people who were being represented in Philadelphia, but it it, it creates a very volatile and and dangerous situation. Um, But usually when they're in town and it's as if This is now a a space where um, those thoughts of blood and violence kept elsewhere. That would very much have been the thought, the thinking, and the philosophy, I think, in native towns um, where you you, when you return from war, you would kind of rid yourself of the thoughts of blood. Uh, To some extent, that's going on here, too.
0: Well, you, you talk in, in the book about times when Indian delegations would come to a city and and have parades and people would come around to look at them. And the Indians were perceived one way in the cities and one way in, on the frontier. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, you might think that. Um, and I might think that. Um, because sometimes when these delegations in, uh, arrive in town crowds turn out. It's a huge event. The newspaper coverage is extensive. Um, It's not as great as it was when, for instance, four so-called Indian kings visited London um, at the beginning of the 18th century during Queen Anne's reign, where that was a huge deal. But it's not completely different. In 1790, George Washington invites a delegation of about almost 30 Creek chiefs from what is now essentially Georgia to visit him in the nation's capital, which was then New York city. And it's an enormous outpouring. And this this visit is almost, it's like a state visit. The Creeks proceed across land from Georgia up to New York City, stopping off at key, America, key cities along the way, Fredericksburg, Richmond, Virginia, um, Baltimore, Philadelphia, and then arrive in New York. And everywhere they stop, they are feted by the city fathers, have dinner, and when they arrive in New York City, there's an enormous crowd, it turns out. People are hanging out of the windows, and there's this sort of formal procession when they walk up Wall Street and salute the members of Congress at, um, and then proceed to dinner with, with Henry Knox. And they're there for in New York for about three weeks. Um, some of them have their portraits sketched by John Trumbull and it's a huge deal. And when that treaty is made, which is the first treaty, the Treaty of New York, seven, August 1790, it's the first treaty of the United States. Makes after the constitution, the formal signing of that treaty at the federal hall, where the Creek chiefs are in attendance, is it's almost like it's the, it's the social event of the season. Anybody who was ever anybody wanted to be there, Um so it's a uh, that seems very different from, of course, how native people were perceived and treated, uh, if you like, out on the frontier, and it feeds into some of the attitudes of people um, on the frontier about how the government, which should be protecting them against these Indians, is actually coddling the Indians uh, and, and and sort of taking their sides. And that's something that uh, is a persistent thing certainly in Pennsylvania history, North Carolina history, and then in, in, in national history. But there is clearly a, a, a different perception. And of course, it involves, has something to do with the fact that Indian delegations who come uh, to town are primarily going there in the interests of peace rather than to, to commit what uh, frontier settlers called depredations.
0: Did, did you find many examples of people in the cities who just didn't like the Indians to be there, thought they were some lower form of life, and why are we treating these these savages so, uh, so well?
1: I think you can see that. And um, I think there are instances in newspaper reporting and in official records where even if that's not stated explicitly, those kind of attitudes and assumptions are there. And even in, you can sometimes see it even in positive responses and positive reactions where the the commenter makes a point of stressing that these Indian people are articulate they are polite, they are well-behaved. Well, clearly the assumption is that's not what we were expecting. But you do get a lot of, peop- uh, of commentary about people worried about how the Indians will behave, how we must not, how are we gonna control, regulate the flow of alcohol because people are afraid that Indians will be drunk on the streets um, and all those kinds of things. And there are other people, of course, you you would have had people in town, who whose attitudes toward Indian people would have been based not on seeing them in town, but on prior experiences, if you like, out on the frontier. Um, and you know those two people too would have been in the crowd.
0: Now, you were on this program before for your previous book, uh, The the Indian World of George Washington, and you got some acclaim for that. The back cover says you're the winner of the George Washington Book Prize and finalist for the National Book Award. Congratulations on that. Thank you. Does that get you anything, like a better deal on your next book?
1: (laughs) I I think it gets an interest in the next book. I'm under no illusions about how well this book will do because it does not have George Washington in the title. (laughs) I think if if you're doing something um, about the first president, there's sort of an automatic um, amount of attention that 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 brings you. Um, But I think in some ways, and the way I work is that very often my one book grows out of another. And in the course of doing the George Washington book, I became very interested in that question of what these delegations were doing In Philadelphia, when they weren't having dinner or doing business with George Washington, what else were they were they doing, but I think it's um, there are some similarities between the two books and and I suppose most of my books in that what i'm looking at and what i'm interested in. Is the place. Of Indian people native Americans in American history. Um, Not so much doing Native American history because obviously I'm not Native American and I have colleagues who can um, reconstruct and write uh, tribal histories much more, um, much more richly than I can. But I'm always interested in how the American history that we know doesn't work out the way that it did without Indian people in it. And so many times you slice American history at some time or place. And there's a Native American story there that hasn't been, either hasn't been told or hasn't been fully told. And it seemed that this was was one that, um, where there was was a story to be traced. Uh, Different kind of book because it's not the life of, not building it around the life of one person, choosing examples here, there, and everywhere. But um, that book was called The Indian World of George Washington. And I suppose now what I'd say after doing that, uh, doing this book, would be be that the Indian world of George Washington was also sometimes in the same town where George Washington was. He He didn't always have to go out to the Ohio frontier to meet Indian people. They came and met him. What did George Washington think of Indians? Um, That's a great question. There's very little in George Washington's writings that would display the kind of interest in American Indians that, say, Thomas Jefferson had. And Thomas Jefferson had a very sort of, I suppose, intellectual kind of interest in Indians as, as he would say, a, a doomed race but he was interested in their language. He was interested in excavating their mounds and that kind of thing. I didn't come across much of that uh, in George Washington's writings. George Washington, as far as as I could see, was primarily interested in the land where Indian people lived uh, and was looking forward to a day when they weren't living there. And that land was belonging to him or to Virginia or to the United States. Having said that, George Washington did spend a lot of time and energy thinking about Indians and writing about Indians and worrying, I would say, about what kind of Indian policies and record in Indian affairs this new nation that he had helped to create would have. Um, He and Secretary of War Henry Knox have a lot of discussion about this. The question is not, was never, I think, will we be taking their land from? them? I think that was just a given. Washington understood that his new nation in order to grow, and in fact, in order to survive, had to keep expanding into Indian land, the question for him was, how do we do that with the minimal um, negative impact on Indian people and do it in a way so that this new nation a new arrival on the world stage looks good to pedigree, looks good to its own citizens, looks good to the nations of the world, and also, I'd say, looks good to posterity. And of course, what he'd set himself there was, I suppose, an impossible task. It's an impossible task that's kind of outlined in the Northwest Ordinance, uh, 1787, that uh, that the Continental Congress passes, which says, we're going to build a nation expanding across Indian land, but we're also always going to deal fairly and honorably with Indian people. Um, Very rarely. Can your planets line up when you've got those two two goals in mind? Uh, but I, I do think, um, and I, I I didn't set out to do a book on George Washington because I was a fan of George Washington by any means, but I I, I did come away from having done that back book, feeling that George Washington did genuinely wrestle with that, even though the debate in his mind was always lopsided. Um he nonetheless um, struggled with it in a way that many of his successors did not.
0: Now, were you able to find records of meetings like negotiating sessions with George Washington and some of the Indian delegations and, and who was in the room and how did it work? And did they speak English?
1: Yeah, some of, the, some of those are available. Uh, some of them there are, and sometimes they're, it's almost like they're not in the room where George wash they will come to Philadelphia and the Indians would submit a written speech to Washington. And then Washington would have that for a while, actually in a few weeks, get Henry Knox to brief him on what what, the, what was going on and then deliver his response uh, several times. So sometimes it seems like there was almost just this formal exchange. In other cases, um, when Piaminko or Mountain Leader of the Chickasaws and the Chickasaw delegation came, um, they are uh, meeting in the room, and I think it's John Quincy Adams talks about it in 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 his, his diary about how they're passing the pipe. And you get snippets of George Washington receiving Indian delegations and giving a formal welcome to them, and then they maybe smoke the the Calumet pipe and drink punch. Um, And then George Washington left. Um, So there's a lot of, um, and I think George Washington had some experience of how to behave and how to conduct Indian diplomacy. He got a crash course in it when he was a young man um, in his very early 20s on a mission in the Ohio country. Where, frankly, I think he didn't have a clue what was going on with wampum belts and he was being played by uh, the Indian leaders that he was dealing with. But I think by the time he's president, he has a sense of what's involved and um, a sense of how these meetings should be conducted respectfully and with an attention to the ritual and protocol and recognize the importance of um, smoking a Calumet pipe or presenting and receiving wampum bells. But there must have been, I would have loved to have far more um, detailed descriptions of people on the the spot of of how this all worked. And of course, yes, there are interpreters. Some of the Indian delegates, of course, can speak English. Alexander McGillivray, Joseph Brown, these guys can can speak English, but very often you require interpreters or sometimes even teams of interpreters because you may have Indian delegates from different tribes and different language groups in the same room. And that becomes um, quite a clunky operation because the formal greeting and the discussion has to go through a little bit like a a telephone tag kind of communication. And you wonder, even with the best of interpreters, how much was lost in translation as it worked its way down the, the line and then, uh, and then came back.
0: When the Indian delegations would arrive in a city like Philadelphia or Boston or Charleston for the first time, what was their reaction? What did they think?
1: Yeah. Um, my short answer to that, I think, has to be I don't know. Um, because I think to fully get at that one would need to look at that through the if you like, the cultural prisms of those people um, and how would they have, um, I mean, I think we interpret the world through what we know and what we understand and how we view that world. So one of the things I wanted to try and avoid in, in writing this book was to create the impression that I thought um, that I could do that effectively. I think that would be presumptuous. And of course, I wouldn't do it very well. Um, nonetheless, what I wanted to do was suggest the possibilities. Uh, I think Dan Esner, was um, a colleague of mine at Vanderbilt in the blurb that he wrote on the back of the book used a nice phrase um, where he said, I invited the reader to consider how this might have looked to Indian people and what their reactions would have be. So I can do that to some extent because sometimes Indian people say so. Uh, and sometimes knowing where the kind of societies and communities and experiences that Indian people came from, you can infer what their reactions would have been. And sometimes you get a sense of it in the things that non-Indian people write, either saying this is how the Indian visitors reacted or rather alluding to other things. So there's a, uh, a moment in there where the governor of Pennsylvania is saying what farewell to a, a delegation of um, or Iroquois people. And he says something along the lines of, and I hope when you get home, you will tell people that we in Philadelphia uh, know how to be hospitable and generous to people visiting us. And what he realizes and what he knows is that the gold standard for that kind of civility and hospitality and generosity was mm-hmm. Indian communities, right? where this was not only an ethic, this was how these people, function and so he's aware of the fact that Indian people visiting Philadelphia what a great city and isn't it impressive but we know that you're probably looking at us and thinking we're a little skingy we're not as generous we're not as welcoming Um, and so you, you you get a sense of that the other thing that I did was most of the delegates from tribal communities do not record what they saw. But lots of other people in this time were doing that, and very often they were visitors from Europe visiting this new nation, and they would go to their major cities and they would describe what they saw. Now, they would have their own reactions to it, of course, as Europeans, but at least the picture, uh, the pen pictures that they created give us a sense of at least what those Indian delegations were looking at so we know what the theater looked like, we know what the churches looked like, we know what the streets looked like, and on that basis, and we can, I think some of the reactions of of Native people would have been um, we can, we can deduce them, the noise, the smell, the crowds. Um, And then other things um, where we're told, but maybe we need to be a little skeptical, like the, the, the Indian residents who go to the theater, or the this, this circus, right? they, they are supposed to be all open mouthed and wonder. But there's a nice extract in a journal by a, a British guy, it's actually an Irishman, uh, Isaac Weld, who is at the circus, I think he's at the circus. Yeah, he is at the circus, where the Indian delegations are at the circus. And he says that they were kind of laid back. The crowd were looking at them to see what their reaction would be. And they kind of sat quietly and they made a comment to one another. They were very um, polite and well behaved. And then Weld says but apparently he was staying in the hotel. He said, but once they got back to their rooms uh, and could relax, They were digging each other in the ribs and laughing about the things that they'd seen, probably laughing about the people who were watching them watch the the circus. Uh, So you get glimpses of this. And I think that's an important little passage because it just reminds us that it's very easy to think that Indian delegates coming to the city are in this goldfish bowl where everybody's staring at them, looking at them, saying, how are they going to behave? What do they do? They're kind of exotic. But of course, they're looking at the people they're meeting and the scenes they're seeing, and they have their own reactions, which they're diplomats, so diplomatically, they keep things to themselves very often.
0: I want to read one thing you say. Indian people had a reaction in the 18th century to American cities, centers of commerce, whose primary purpose was the business of making money. According to John Heckwelder, they wonder that the white people are striving so much to get rich and to heap up treasures in this world which they cannot carry with them into the next. Such behavior ran counter to values and practices in Native communities. So the perception of money and the value of money it was very different between the two cultures.
1: Yeah, and it's changing um, because, of course, in and even the concept of trade, uh, trade in in native communities is an exchange of gifts that doesn't necessarily mean that those gifts have to be of equal value and you're not indulging in this to try and get one over on somebody else the exchange of gifts very often had a a different purpose and that was to establish a relationship and friendship uh, and trust between people of course when european traders arrive with european trade goods and european market practices of first there's a um, there's a collision and very often of course indian people are exploited in that but of course these things feed into into native society so for instance the the creeks that i mentioned coming to new york alexander who was the um, principal of the uh, Creek delegations was a um, he's part Creek, but his his father's Scottish, and he'd had an education in Charleston. So he and some other Creek, Creek people at that time they're making that move towards a more of a, if you like, a market economy. Um, so this is in chain, in in flux, and I I wouldn't want to create the impression that Indian people are uh, always in with this value system coming up against europeans who are always of, of a different value system but it's something that they would have seen in sharp relief in in the cities and there are comments from native people or comments made for native people by people like heck Welder, where they may be actually delivering more of a criticism of white society than an accurate account of, of native society, but where they say you know, th- this is and what's what's the William Woods' phrase, too much getting and spending. And that, of course, was was different to how Native communities functioned and how Native relationships should function. I
0: have to ask you about something before we run out of time, and that's something you said right in the beginning that that fascinated you about this, is when the Indian delegations were in the cities, what did they do in their spare time?
1: Yeah, and and I wish I could find more of that. And they, if they're there for a long time, they've got to be doing stuff. And we know when they get a tour of the city, we know that when the the city fathers tried to entertain them and that they went uh, in Philadelphia, they went to the theater and they went to the circus. Uh, After that was established with, um, 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 well, there's this equestrian circus, it's the first circus in, in America. That kind of stuff gets attention in the press. But did they go out at night? Um, and if so, what did they do? So I talk about in, in, in the book, um, and one thing they would have encountered, because certainly European visitors to Philadelphia and New York encountered them if they walked out in the streets at night, was sex workers. They would have seen that. That's all we know, Um, but that's a different, there's an underside to the city. There's a a view of the city that you get in the official records and the newspapers. But I was left wondering more about how did they experience, not just the underside of the city, but the day-to-day life of the city. They must have gone to the the market in Philadelphia how did how did that all work out? Did they just walk through seeing what was going on or were they participating in? Um they we know some about the lodgings that they were provided and the official dinners that were given. But what happened? Did you step out for a sandwich, what happened? Um so I think that's where I found I think that's probably what it interested me. Uh got me into the project, and it's probably still what left me most frustrated in in finishing the book, that I I couldn't get more of that and get a real sense of the, um, the texture of these meetings on the street, if you like.
0: Let me read one more thing that you wrote. Colonial authorities took steps to keep Indian visitors entertained. But the visitors were also part of the entertainment and they knew it. And you use the phrase Indianness, like they were playing Indianness while they were there.
1: Yeah. And it gets to this whole notion of um, what constitutes Indian and what uh, role that plays. Um, and I think it's, and this goes back, of course, to the, I mean, the famous example is when the four Indians are visiting London, they go to see. Uh, an operatic version of Macbeth, which is flying around and all of that, I guess. I can only imagine how they reacted to that. But when they are there, they have to stop the play because the audience is clamoring to see the Indians who are in a box. And they put four chairs on the stage so that the visiting um, Indians can watch the play in a position where the audience can watch the Indians watching the play. So all of this is part of it. Indian people are, attend the theater and sometimes they're invited to be part of the entertainment put on a dance, um, some kind of performance likewise in the circus. And there are other instances where Indian people, Indian delegates um, are not just performing by Um, by invitation but it could be seen that they're playing up this role and it's very easy to see I think for us to dismiss that as yeah they're just performing a role but I think if they are they're doing it for, for a purpose and that very often by Whereas I'm thinking of it's giving the audience what they want. I think there's more to it than that. But it establishes in a non-Indian audience a kind of a sense of an authenticity. At the same time, and I I think this is true going right up into the Indian people who uh, participated in Buffalo Bill's Wild West shows, you're also putting on public display aspects of a culture and a way of life that are supposed to be disappearing. Um, And it's not. It's alive and well and and kicking, and here it is in in town. So I think that some of these things, and I have no way of getting into the uh, minds and calculations of of phonetic people in town, some of these things are part of the whole package that they are bringing to this encounter, that they are diplomats. And I would say it's perhaps no different from if, you know, if Princess Will and Kate visit the United States, they're terribly British, <laughs> because that's what their audience expect and they, they like to see that. Um, and I think just it, some of it is, is just that, but I actually go further and suggest in the book and say it's actually more than that. It's maybe even a demonstration of sovereignty and a reminder that we are members of a tribal nation. And as diplomats, and this is true in the American period, of course, as diplomats, if they're coming to meet a treat, make a treaty, A treaty, by definition, is an agreement between two sovereign nations, and I think we often forget that, looking back at the history of especially U.S.-Indian relations, where those treaties were so often instruments simply to dispossess Indian people, Um, but there is in them that recognition that's important.
0: Well, that's going to have to be the last word. We're out of time. We've been speaking with Colin Calloway. He's the author of this book, The Chiefs Now in This City, Indians and the Urban Frontier in Early America. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you. Always a pleasure. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.